This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Well, hello and welcome to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Jeremy Bodenhammer. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kiri. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So just a quick bio on Jeremy. Jeremy Bodenhammer is the best-selling author of Adapt or Die, co-founder and CEO of Shiphawk, a shipping software for volume shippers. And I just finished reading Adapt or Die, and that's what we're here to talk about. So super pumped to get into the conversation there. But just before we do, Jeremy's an expert at the intersection of shipping and commerce, has been featured in TechCrunch, AOL, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune Internet Retailer, Inc. and Entrepreneur. Jeremy is a frequent speaker on innovation, technology, and business development. He's an active volunteer in the community, an avid CrossFitter, and lives in Santa Barbara with his wife, educator and youth advocate, Bethany Bodenhammer, and their three sons. So as I said, Adapt or Die, the subtitle of that book is Your Survival Guide to Modern Warehouse Automation. And it's all about treating order fulfillment, not as an afterthought, but as a strategic moat for for your company and how you can compete with marketplace giants like Amazon. So I was really interested to crack open this book. It's not something that we really talk about on this podcast much. And obviously, you're a real expert there, Jeremy. So happy to have you. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what prompted you to write this book before we jump in. Yeah, well, the pandemic set in and all of a sudden travel stopped. And so I had some extra time on my hands. And I realized that the number one barrier to success for the independent merchant from a distribution side is education. And we've got all this data at our disposal and figured that I should put it down in paper so that all the independent merchants have a a guide for setting up their operations to help them compete with these giants that have more resources than than we can fathom. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And having written a couple of books myself, I understand the process of condensing your experience into a book is very time consuming and it really forces your the best ideas to the top. You can't just put everything you can't just put everything in there. So what what I appreciated about this was for someone without really any experience of of warehouse operations and automation, I was able to to get a pretty good idea of what goes on in your world and some good takeaways right from the top. Very good. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So the first part of the book I would describe it as having two main sections. First part of the book sets the stage and makes the business case of you know, why, why focus on logistics and order fulfillment as a strategic advantage for your company. And then the second part goes point by point into areas to focus on per your experience at Shiphawk and a lot of very tactical things to do and areas to investigate and checklists and case studies, which is awesome. Thinking first about that context part in part one, you talk about the big five 
behemoths in our category who would who would dominating Amazon being one of them and why brands should be wary of exclusively partnering with these big five marketplaces and and platforms and we we're just talking before we jumped on the call about a bit of a debate out there about partnering with those those marketplaces and being where the customer is shopping people are already shopping on Amazon and Walmart and Target like you're not going to convince someone to suddenly stop doing doing that and start shopping on your D2C site exclusively overnight on the other hand you don't really have any customer data through the marketplaces it's very much Amazon's customer or Target's customer you really get no looking on that so I'd love for you to expand your position with the big five and give your take on that sort of philosophical debate that goes on out there. Absolutely. So the way I look at it, there's two parts to these marketplaces, what I call the eyeballs side and the distribution side. The eyeballs is the place where everyone goes to shop, right? It's got all the traffic and absolutely we as sellers want to be there. That's where all the action is. In Adapt or Die, I call the big five, the, the five APIs of the apocalypse. And this group is made up of Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba, JD.com and Shopify. And their friend or foe, depending on the circumstance of each seller's business, right? But there's similarities that are across all of them. For example, actually, before I start with the example, I think it's important to note how big these companies actually are, how dominant they are. And I, I got two examples for that. One is Amazon spends up to $200 million on each new smart warehouse, each new smart distribution center that they build. Another one is Alibaba on Singles Day in 2019. They shipped over a billion packages in a single day. So their power is immense, yet the challenge to independent merchants here is that smaller sellers have to meet the same buyer expectations with far fewer resources. So getting shipments delivered in a fashion that feels free to the buyer and makes it to their doorstep in two days or less, it's not an easy feat, even for the giants. And this is one reason why many sellers end up utilizing both sides of the business, the eyeball side and the distribution side, and doing their distribution with FBA or other services Amazon wants merchants to use. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point about the expectations of customers as well. There was a one of the anecdotes that you share in Adapt or Die was I think you personally did a did a split test of a customer that you'd recently started working at at Shiphawk. One shopping, buying a product through their Amazon channel, and then buying product through their ecom channel. You got the Amazon package in in two days, as promised, with updated updates along the way when it was prepared, when the order was prepared, when it was shipped, when it was expected to arrive, and then when you purchased through the D 2 C site, it arrived. A week later, no update, nothing. So that <laughs> those, those stories rip rip apart my soul. <laughs> it's so painful <laughs> as you're waiting day after day, and you're like, "No, you can do better." Yeah, yeah, and and like you said, that's the that's the competition that you're up against is that expectation from the shopper that's going up and up every year. Mm-hmm. Prior to to COVID. Amazon was on a on a track to chase down one day shipping and make that available across a large part of their assortment. That was as someone who sort of advocates for 
brand selling on on Amazon, that made me a little nervous because that one day shipping has to be pretty expensive. And where's that funding going to come from? Ostensibly, it was going to come from the brands that sell on or to Amazon. So I wonder if you have any perspective there on just how much more difficult and expensive one day shipping is compared to two day. And is that, do you still see us moving in, in that direction? And is that, is that going to be a change that's led by Amazon? Yeah, given COVID, I think that's a really interesting question because pre-COVID, we were living in a different world. I mean, just-in-time inventory was the thing. Nobody wanted to hold back stock of any kind. You thought we could get things from the other side of the world at the drop of a hat. And so Amazon was really pushing the envelope. And it's not just the cost from a shipping perspective to get the orders out. You know, Amazon's got their delivery service provider program, DSP, where they've got their own vehicles now, their own drivers making these final mile deliveries. But it's also the distribution centers and how many of those distribution centers are needed to service a geography the size of the United States in that time frame. And it's enormous. So I forgot the exact number, but I think, it, I mean, it was a massive, massive number in the first quarter alone, the cost to get that program rolled out. And now, I mean, I read yesterday that UPS just returned their express delivery guarantee that they removed during COVID because they didn't have the capacity to meet it consistently, but they changed it and it's now midnight. It was not 1030 in the morning. So the world is a different place today. And I'm not one that's going to tell you I can see the future and tell you what's going to happen. But things that we are seeing are brands, including Amazon, are keeping more inventory in stock, right? They're having it more readily available. They're eating that cost. And they are doing their best to keep up with the demand that already exists. There are many companies that just don't have bandwidth to even think about improving speeds at this point because they can barely keep up with the order volumes that have shifted to e-commerce by way of the COVID demand. Interesting. So it could sort of take a backseat. Speed could take a backseat just to sort of increased demand and volume in the in the system overall. That seems to make that makes sense to me, especially in light of Q4 last year where the, the shipping carriers were imposing restrictions on brands like they would only ship so many packages from brands and if you're over your limit too bad (laughs) just yeah they just cut you off or or they have what i call the success fee so the brands that are shipping too much volume they'll start charging you a higher price past a certain point it's crazy just crazy yeah and i think there is a good argument to be made around amazon becoming a shipper themselves it outside of just offering logistic services to merchants and ostensibly that was why Amazon created F- FBA is because you think it was UPS just there was a, a holiday period where UPS di- didn't meet Amazon's service requirements and that's sort of where Bezos decided to double down on FBA and become a, a shipping carrier themselves essentially. And I wonder if, do you agree that they could sort of become a a, a carrier in their own right and that, you know, we might be sending care packages via Amazon rather than UPS or FedEx in the future? Yeah, that's funny you say that, you know, care packages like your grandma down the street can use an Amazon service. I'd argue that they've already done this to a large degree 
right? Pre-COVID, Amazon was aggressively pu- pushing these shipping services, even for products that weren't sold on the marketplace. We had customers where an Amazon rep would walk in and say, hey, we'll take all of your parcel for this period of time for this depressed cost, just so you can try it out. They were trying to move goods through their network. And I would not be surprised if Prime members were offered access to otherwise to the otherwise closed network, right? I look at Amazon's one of the downsides of Amazon's network is it's closed, right? You and I can't just walk up and use it. There's always gotchas there, right? You have to qualify by being an active participant somehow in their marketplace. But if you think about it, Amazon and their competitors would benefit by opening their network to members, right? I don't think they'll ever open it to non-members and member is, you know, can be defined in different ways because they need density. Density is the key to success for them. They want that DSP driver to stop at every driveway. They don't want him skipping any houses. That is where they make the money or to a large degree where the cost is the lowest. So if there was a way to extend that benefit to accelerate prime membership or prime fees and keep everything in their closed system, I absolutely think they would do it. Super interesting. Yeah, there's. we've talked a fair bit about Instacart recently on this podcast, and that's a huge problem that Instacart solves through its model is the root density. And by aggregating orders from multiple retailers, they're able to achieve root density, whereas just one retailer on their own is, is not able to do that. So that that makes a lot of sense. And Sorry, just to, just to clarify for the audience, when you say DSP, that's is it the delivery service delivery program? service provider delivery service? Yeah, yeah, that's the Sprinter van with the Amazon logo that's going to door to door. It's not an Amazon employee; they use contractors. And what they did was they went out and let customers, or sorry, they'd let anybody apply to open a route, and those routes are dedicated to Amazon. They only service Amazon orders, but they're not employees of Amazon. Right. Yes, just want to clarify because there is another Amazon acronym called DSP, which is their demand side platform, which is an advertising platform. So <laughs> just wanted to clarify that. We could probably only speak in Amazon acronyms for this whole podcast if you want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. So an- another, and it sounds like we're sort of having an Amazon centric conversation. I, w- I want to get beyond that. But just to close this out a little bit, To give Amazon credit for what they've done, I think that what they've done is democratize access to predictively priced logistics. And I wonder if you agree with with this, but previously purchasing shipping through the various carriers, various zones and dims and weights, there, there were so many variables, very difficult to know what how much was going to cost to get a package to someone but with with Amazon FBA it's the math is all right there it's all it's more or less predictable there are some sort of gotchas in there in terms of long-term storage fees and things fees that might change or miscategorized items or things like that but largely I know how much it's going to cost to fulfill a certain item irrespective of where that customer is located and that to my understanding was really an innovation in the world of logistics because prior to that it was all, you know, a myriad amount of variable costs. So that's something, a model that there's a company called Deliver 3PL 
tech company called Deliver that's tried to replicate this model, seeing it as an innovation and more merchants out there want that simplicity. So I wonder if you agree with that and what, although that might be an, an innovation, what are the implications of that to brands and merchants? Yeah. So I think the the fluctuations, the, the lack of predictability are just different. There is a lot of standardization with FBA, but prices and requirements do fluctuate throughout the year, right? We know about the, the crazy fluctuations of storage fees around peak, that type of thing. And so I think they have different ways of always keeping merchants on their toes. But the biggest implication of this, I think, is really the data. You mentioned before, the customer belongs to Amazon. And there's numerous stories, some I cover in the book about products gaining traction and Amazon private labels them. And, you know, now they've got their own competing product, you know, some heartbreaking stories as far as that's concerned. But I'm not saying at all that you shouldn't sell on Amazon or marketplaces. I know merchants who have developed successful strategies for dealing with the worst of situations, right? Things like keeping your best products off the marketplace or developing a different line of products specifically for the marketplace. That keeps the merchant in control of their own destiny. And there's in, I mean, Amazon doesn't like this. And I think they're more aggressive than the other marketplaces as far as the rules are concerned. But there's no reason that you can't use FBA for some products, right? Just like you have some lines or some products on certain marketplaces and use different strategies, different partners for other marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think that that is, that's definitely a strategy that's, that's available. Let's get into some of the specifics. And this is where your experience founding Shiphawk and all of the, the clients that you've worked with there is, is hugely valuable because you have a, a ton of great insights and stories and horror stories, good news stories, tactics to try. That's the real gold of this book. There's six critical components that you share around mastering warehouse automation. And before we get into those six components, I wanted to understand at what size in either revenue or another metric, does it make sense for a manufacturer to insource fulfillment and set up their own warehouse? Yeah, I'm not one who believes it's size that determines whether fulfillment should be handled in-house or not. I think there are very practical reasons to outsource various components of distribution for companies of all sizes just as there are excellent reasons to keep it in-house. You could say frequently smaller shippers outsource because they don't yet have volume or resources or a desire to fulfill orders or fulfill orders efficiently or do it at all, right? Mid-sized companies may want to add a distribution point to drive down costs or speed delivery times or just test out a new market. What companies like Flowspace or Stored, or as you mentioned, Deliver, these type of partnerships can not only get the merchant outsource fulfillment, but also integrations into multiple marketplaces or sales channels, which is a side benefit, right? That you don't go going direct to one marketplace per se. But there's downsides. I have a case study on the website of a friend of mine who runs customer success for a direct-to-consumer brand. And last year, orders at their 3PL got backed up and she had no controls in place to resolve the problem, right? She had outsourced the whole thing. So she ended up having to send out discount codes to tens of thousands of customers. And last I checked, only a hundred of these things had been redeemed, meaning that customers had, for by all you know, evidence that we had available, completely abandoned the brand because of these slow shipping times. So there's risks and benefits both ways, right? Keeping it in-house or sending it out. Mm. 
Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. So let's go through these six critical components and it'd be great to get a couple of factoids or a, or a story from you about each one. Tell us about shipping. Yeah. As so I break them down into these six components to, you know, the warehouse is such a massive place these days. So these are the six that I think are the most, have the most impact or the easiest to access, kind of the low hanging fruit. On shipping, the important point here is most B2C businesses lose somewhere between two and 5% of net sales on shipping expense. And this means that a mid-sized retailer with call it 20 million in net sales is losing a million dollars a year on overspend on shipping costs alone. Yeah. Just going back to this chapter and looking at what I what I highlighted here with your company, Shiphawk, analyzing millions of transactions, you found that carrier and service routing is one of the biggest offenders of errors and 22.3% of orders that you analyzed were shipped with the wrong carrier or service. So either shipped too fast or you know, the more expensive option when it like a needlessly expensive option 22.3 percent of the time exactly Amazing. Yep. almost almost one in four shipments could have been sh- met the delivery promise at a lower cost hmm. what about packaging yeah i love the packaging one because it's such a big part of all of our lives like everybody has boxes now stacked up like i remember i was a kid there was never even a delivery truck on the road yet alone this like massive stack of cardboard on the side of the house all day but 40% of shipments are shipped in a box that's too large for its contents. And carriers address this with dimensional pricing, which can add 25% or more to the baseline shipping cost. But the, the real reality is that this is an environmental nightmare. In the US, overpacking puts 25 million additional truckloads on the road each year. And we're cutting down a billion trees each year for cardboard for these boxes. So this is just, it's an environmental disaster. Super interesting. Yeah, there was a, I wonder if you know about the initiative, I think it was like a year or two ago where Amazon had a penalty for vendors who didn't convert over to SIOC packaging, ships in own container. Is that a solution that you often see implemented amongst your clients that they're trying to avoid overboxing as much as possible as well? Yes, we have a packing software that tells shippers which box to use for which order based on the unique items that are in it. There's also, you know, box making machines like pack size and others where they'll custom make a box on a per order basis. And there is a lot of demand for both those products we see. We do see the ship in its own packaging. We do see a lot of the poly bags and anything they can to reduce the amount of material that's being used. Yeah, this makes sense. And as more shopping occurs online as opposed to in in retail stores, the whole configuration of, you know, what is the purpose of packaging completely changes as well. It's not about standing out on a shelf. It's about getting the product to the customer in an efficient and safe way. So, yeah, big philosophical changes there. Okay. Another one of your items here that you get into is warehousing. Yeah. Warehousing rates, rates meaning costs have skyrocketed. And in many places, getting space period is a challenge. I read an article last year that claimed that the US is going to need to add 
a billion square feet of warehouse space before 2025, just to account for the e-commerce growth that we've been experiencing. So as far as space utilization, which is key, I advise customers and, and people we talk to, to to look up before they look out, right? Making sure that cube is fully utilized is something that is sometimes overlooked. And then some of those companies I mentioned before, these dynamic warehousing companies like a flow space or a stored are great if there's overflow or you need a new market or you just can't find space available where it's needed on a temporary basis. Right. We've got three more critical components that that you talk about in the book, data and analytics, robotics, and ops workers. What are some highlights there? Yeah. On data and analytics, the number one reason I wrote the book is that nine out of 10 prospects that my sales team speaks to do not have operational goals in place or metrics to measure progress by. And these days, we literally can drown in data. There's so much data available, but in the operations side of the business, few are using it. An example I give a lot of times are, I don't know if we can imagine a sales operation without a sales pipeline and, and metrics to see you know, what deals are going to close. So I don't think we should be drowning in data. My suggestion is just to keep it simple, start small. And in the back of the book, I've actually got a list of operational metrics that shippers can use to start with that can get them going. On the robotic side, by 2018, the average warehouse SKU count was over 14,000 items. And of those 14,000 SKUs, only 43% of those could be handled robotically. So there's some great robotic solutions out there from companies like Plus One and Fetch. But lots of times that's too much of a stretch for a smaller shipper or it's not all inclusive for a larger shipper. So sometimes they can access robotics more efficiently by partnering with a 3PL, like we talked about earlier, a bigger operation. But much like data, shippers shouldn't try to boil the ocean with robots and just start simple with hardware, scanners, dimensioners, box making machines, and grow deliberately from there. And then on the operations workers side, 55% of warehouse managers report labor scarcity as their top problem. Labor costs make up 65% of most facility operating budgets, yet almost 20% of the workers that are surveyed describe themselves as actively disengaged. And half of those say they're doing just enough to get by. So the math here just doesn't add up. I believe the only answer to this problem, which is going to get worse, right? There's just not enough bodies to, to fill all these warehouse jobs. I believe the answer is to invest in, in automations like we've been talking about, but also to invest in the workers themselves, invest in training, improve benefits, and treat the back office like we do the workers in the front office. I would love one day to see a greatest warehouses to work out list to compete with the greatest companies lists we fawn over for the non-warehouse jobs. Yep. I really love that that message that came across in the book as well, just to read one one section out. The goal isn't to avoid robots. The goal is to invest in people. It's the people who make your business work. It's the people who invent, improve, and create. So, yeah, you can have the robotics and the data and analytics and the automation and be taking care of people too and giving them meaningful work to do. So I really like that message. And you've got some really specific points in the book of things to think about there to make it a win-win for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In closing, I'd love to hear if you have anything you can share about how focusing on these components have improved 
e-commerce channel profitability for your clients because that's that's a big over the last 18 months as we've seen a lot of volume shift over to e-commerce for a lot of omni-channel brands e-commerce is their fastest growing channel but it's often not their most profitable channel so do you see a path through these initiatives to actually turning that argument around absolutely an example i like to give is the fedex or ups guy or gal walks into your office and works with you to negotiate rates and you feel you feel great you're on top of the world you're just negotiated a huge discount off the published rate you're telling everybody the problem is that few businesses ever actually realize those savings right? Regardless of the channel, you know, one reason e-commerce is so expensive is because of that distribution cost. So this is, you know, really a place where at Shiphawk, we step in to help customers and help them use those complicated tariffs, select the right box, the right carrier, the right service that optimizes both cost and transit times. Those savings and efficiencies go straight to the bottom line, which are important across all channels. In fact, this morning, New case study from one of our customers hit my inbox, and it's a retailer who was processing three to 400 orders a day in each warehouse with their old shipping software. They moved to our product, and their throughput increased to seven to 800 orders a day without having to add any headcount. So not only does that make that channel more profitable, but that definitely gives them resource to invest in those workers that are there, make sure they stay, make sure they can grow with the business and be more productive, which will further improve their throughput and efficiencies. Love it. That's great. And speaking of Shiphawk, where can people learn more about Shiphawk and keep up to date with with what you're working on? Yeah, well, at Shiphawk.com. And then I've also got a a website, JeremyBodenhammer.com. It's the book website. And I've got a free shipping strategy assessment on there that'll show shippers exactly where the opportunities lie in their current operations and where they should be focusing. It's also got lists of partners that they can partner with, some of those I've mentioned today and, and others. So those are the best places and the best resources I can point you to. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Take care.